Sego Sewagwego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory in the summer and fall of 2020. These podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services. My name is Lisa Venevri from the Mohawk Nation and Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program. Welcome to the Ohatde Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. On today's podcast, we'll be talking with Carly Gallant, who is the Save the Evidence Coordinator at the Woodland Cultural Center, 184 Mohawk Street in Brantford. Welcome, Carly. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Well, today I'd like to ask you several questions that I know our listeners will probably want to know about. Uh, Tell us about Save the Evidence and why it was called that. So it all began in 2013 uh, when the Woodland Cultural Center, which is in the site of the former uh, Mohawk Institute Residential School, uh, when it had a severe roof leak. Uh, So we asked the community uh, what they wanted us to do uh, because it was going to cost a million dollars to redo just the roof alone and we didn't have the funds available. So we asked the community, did they want us to tear the building down or did they want us to try and save it? And 98% said to save it. And uh, that's when Save the Evidence was launched. Uh, so we wanted to physically save the building, which was the evidence of the residential school system. Mm. That's really interesting because um, I'm not sure how many residential schools were were um, in Ontario, for instance. But uh, is this one? Is this the only one that's left? So in Ontario, there were 17 residential schools total, and uh, this is one of only two that I'm aware of that are actually occupied and still being used today for different purposes. So we have uh, Shinwalk, which is now Algoma University, and then the Mohawk Institute, which is now Woodland Cultural Center. All the others have either uh, been demolished or have just crumbled based on time of being vacant or are still just sitting vacant. Mm. Well, I remember sort of when they were having those discussions and and I was thinking about that because uh, my relatives attended there on both sides of my family. And and uh, I think, you know, I think it's important that it remains. And I'm glad that the community did um, decide to do this. And also, you know, I, I really think the title of the campaign that you have going to to continue to save it says it all. I agree 100%. I think that it uh, there's one thing to walk to a site that has a you know no longer the building and just a, a plaque that says this was here and that says it's not the same as actually walking through the halls and seeing it and and experiencing it that way. It's it's mm-hmm. truly unique. So that building, I know it burned down a couple times, but that building that's there now, when was that constructed? 
So um, it's actually a bit of a Frankenstein building because it also not only did it have um, rebuilds based on um, uh, fires, but also on uh, health codes changed. So they did eventually have to add, you know, like stairwells and stuff. So different era uh, parts of the building are actually all from different eras. And now the reconstruction, it's it's even more of that. So you have an example like the front porch. Its timestamp is 2019, um, whereas you know the side stairwells are in the 70s. So it's it's truly a, a, a time capsule from different eras. Mm-hmm. And what is it like now when you go in the building, like it, at the stage it is now? So currently it's actually, uh, it is safe to walk in now. It was a construction site up until about March, uh, where you had to walk through with a uh, hard hat and steel toe boots and uh, had to be uh, taken through with the site super. Uh, And now it is actually safe to occupy. So my office is now inside of the building uh, on the second floor now. So now we've uh, preserved the original hardwood floors. Um, A lot of the other original kind of elements of the building have been preserved or have been uh, um, replicated. And so now it's starting to look like what it might have looked like in in the past at, at certain um, years of the building, uh, there's certain spaces that look 100% different. So the third floor, unfortunately, because of the uh, the new roof and needing to have a, uh, a roof to code for for present times, uh, it does mean that that space will never quite look like what it originally would have. Um, but now we're looking into the future of what that space could be, um, ending that you know your your visit um, on the third floor, kind of in a space of moving forward, of healing, of of um, resiliency. Um, so creating purposely creating a space that doesn't necessarily look like the original space. Mm. Now I've worked in that building over the years, and in fact, my office was there just before they started the renovation, and and um, and I would feel presence there of spirits. And I know others have as well, and especially in the office that I was in, um, uh, there's there's lots of stories about about on the second floor. But what is the feeling like now when you go there? It's almost um, a feeling of resilience. So you walk in, you walk in, and you're you're proud of how far the construction has come along. Every single day you walk in there, and it's always you almost have to remind yourself of what it used to look like and the the deterioration of the building and and now what it looks like. So there's definitely a feeling of resilience in the space. Um, I don't get that feeling that I used to get in that, the building. Um, when I used to go in, you know, as a summer student, when I was younger, I'd always be very scared to be in the building alone. And now, now I don't have that same feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's definitely more of a hopeful moving forward type. And ceremony has been done at that building over the years. Yes, Yes. there's been many. um, And we'll have another one after construction's complete, and then we'll do another one then. Mm, That's good. Um, uh, What is the the museum? Is it going to be a museum? So technical term will be interpretation center. Okay. Uh, just because of the logistics of housing a, an actual museum, um, it's a it's a lot, and it changes the the look and feel. Um, it'd be different if we were a total new build, and then we would probably deem it a museum. Um, but the building itself is the is the artifact. The building itself is the most important part of it. So instead, we're going to interpret the walls and the space that we we have. Um, instead of having to recreate Using it. technology? Yep. So we'll be using technology and artifacts. Okay. Tell us what kind of artifacts we could see when we go there. Uh, so for an example, we have a few of them on our display in our museum right now. Um, and we have an old shoe 
that we found inside the walls of the, the Mohawk Institute. So while construction was taking place, almost on a daily basis, um, a construction worker would bring over a box full of items that were found inside of walls, underneath floorboards, and just hidden in any little space possible um, with the map of acknowledging where it was all found and everything. Um, so we were going to take those items. Um, so we found, you know, shoes, notes, um, underwear, uh, weirdly a live bullet in the girl's dorm. Um, so which has, I'm sure, an interesting story to it. Um, lots of hair, uh, marbles, uh, notes from home. Um, years ago, we also found a, uh, found a quilt as well and a couple dolls so we definitely mm -hmm. have we have thousands of items that have been found on the site and inside the walls mm -hmm. so it'll hopefully we've gotten a lot of them preserved um so you'll be able to actually see you know items that went, once belonged to the children that went there and children were hiding these to keep them safe for themselves right yes so that's what we uh we didn't know at the time um but we had gone in um to, in between some walls on the third floor to find some more of these items and um, it was actually in my my mom's old office in that building and um at the time, I was a summer student and one of the smallest people she knew. So she actually sent me in between the walls to, to find some more items. Um, so it's a waist deep underneath a floorboard, pulling up clumps of hair and marbles and toys and little candy wrappers and things. Um, and unfortunately, I did have a bit of a panic attack in there. Felt like I shouldn't have been there. I felt like I was in their hiding space and I was not supposed to be there. So I, I saw something. It could have been a rat. Could have been something else. I don't know. But my mom did end up sledgehammering open the wall to, to get me out. Um, but all those items we put on display for tour groups uh, to show them what we had found. And um, there's actually a survivor who, who was able to explain more. And uh, when looking at the items, she explained that it was almost, um, they were trying to keep them all safe. So especially hair and other like personal belongings was, was, uh, it was a safety precaution. But other things, it was almost like they're, um, they had something that another kid didn't. If they had a marble... They had something mm -hmm. that other kids didn't have. Um, yeah. So it was kind of like a little token to, to give them something. And we can't forget that some children spent their childhoods there. Yep. So yeah, you imagine uh, children now that have, you know, so many toys and just um, like all whole rooms dedicated to their items that they own. Um, and now, and these children would have been given a small little cubby of a box, like a locker, and all of their personal belongings were in there. Yeah. Um, and that's really different to, I think, how most children grow up nowadays. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk about a little about the spaces that are in that building. It's a huge building. And what spaces are going to be preserved for the tours? So we'll put, uh, so we actually have an interpretation plan that was made up by a, a third party consultant uh, by Tim Johnson. Um, so he's put something together and it's been um, sent, submitted to our board of directors to get approved. Um, and he worked with survivors to walk through the space and pull out those key storylines, those key kind of almost like your, your journey. How will you walk through this building and what will you hear and what will you learn on your journey through? And so um, he's specified certain rooms that are important to that timeline and then rooms that can be used for administration. So mm. for example, the basement, is, so the whole building is pretty much a mirror image of each other. So you have your boy side and your girl side. So the boys' side playroom will be interpreted so you can see what it would have looked like. But the girls' side playroom, which is a mirror image, is actually now our, our archives. 
Uh, so we are trying our best to at least showcase one of, of everything in the, in the room or in the building. Well, that's a good idea. What about the uh, cafeteria? Is that going to be a working cafeteria? So hopefully down the road, it's been mentioned that we would like to have a functioning kitchenette attached to the interpretive kitchen to have a fully functioning um, uh, cafeteria as well. Um, but at the moment, it's uh, it's actually been completely restored. Um, there's new tin ceiling. Um, all the walls are all replastered. The floor has been, the new concrete floor has been poured. Um, and it's actually... I don't want to say it's a beautiful space, but it kind of is. It's so open and airy. And this is one of the few spaces where children actually could see their family members. Um, so it's almost like you feel that in there, in that space. Um, and so we actually had uh, tables and uh, benches made by uh, Mennonite volunteers from Mennonite Disaster Services and Mennonite Central Committee of Ontario. Um, and they replicated uh, tables and benches from the former Mohawk Institute building before it burnt down. Uh, the more recent ones would have been metal, kind of more army style. Um, but we wanted to pay homage to the previous era of Mohawk Institute. Um, so there will be um, full rows of tables and benches in, in it. So it will be fully usable. Oh, that's good. Um, there's just so much to learn about that part of Canadian history, isn't there? Yeah, it's almost it's almost endless because there's the ripple as well. You're not just learning about what happened, the trauma that happened while at residential school, but also the lasting trauma and the impacts it has on our communities up until today. And I know the Woodland Cultural Centre has worked extensively with survivors of the residential school over the years. So tell, tell the listeners how the survivors will be, um, will be helping to tell that story. Well, it's all of it will be genera uh, generated by their truths, by what they've told us is will be the timeline and, and the stories that you hear is from them. Uh, we were um, privileged to have uh, received funding to record survivors' stories. Um, so we have that audio and that video of, of over, I think we're at over 60 story recordings now, or I should say truth recordings now. Um, and we get to now use that and interpret it and use that in the spaces. And we're going to keep doing that. We were actually hoping, uh, we had just submitted for a grant that we were successful for, um, that we were going to be going into other communities to start, continue recording these stories as survivors are, a, um, you know, they're a, a shrinking demographic. So we were hoping to get into other communities this, uh, this year. And unfortunately, because of COVID restrictions, we have, we won't be able to do that. So we had to uh, revise our, our grant unfortunately, um, but the, they are the heart and the soul of, of this campaign and the restoration and the interpretation. Yeah, they, they certainly are. We can't, um, we can't tour a facility like that without hearing some of these stories. So I know in these times that you're doing virtual tours for the schools now. How long are your virtual tours? So we started doing virtual tours um, in June. Uh, it took us a couple months um, to figure it out once we closed to the public of what we could offer digitally. And we already had a virtual tour created of the Mohawk Institute. And it's, uh, it follows the guide, Lori Gallant, who's actually my mom, as mm -hmm. she goes through the building um, and takes you through and teaches you about the history of it with the 142 years that the building was operational. And uh, you hear from five different survivors as well, their interviews. And so we already had that made and we were already showing that on site at the Woodland Cultural Center uh, once we lost access to the Mohawk Institute building because of construction. 
So when we had to figure out what we, what we could offer virtually online through Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all those other platforms, um, we realized we already had it. We already created it and we could just repurpose it. So we started using it online. So we got uh, special permission from our board of directors to show it digitally. And uh, since June, um, I've personally shown it to over 42 groups, over 2,000 people. Um, and all the revenue from it actually does go to the Saved Evidence campaign. So think some quick math. I think from uh, when we started doing the virtual tours online to the end of November, we'll have raised $20,000 for Save the Evidence just from, um, from these virtual tours. Wow. And let's talk about raising money for Save the Evidence. How, can, how are you doing that and how can our listeners participate? Yeah, so once uh, definitely March changed fundraising for us a lot. Um, so we were a little nervous the first two months of this fiscal year, which was uh, March and April. Um, sorry, April and May. Sorry about that. Um, April and May, we, uh, down, uh, donations were down about 83%. So we were definitely worried, um, but we also knew that we weren't the priority at that time. Um, a lot of first responders um, and other priority groups were asking for donations at those uh, those times. So we left the space open for that, uh, for the calls for food donations and other items. Um, and then once June hit, uh, it was the, uh, the giving challenge. Um, so we decided to participate and um, ask our community to start donating again and to assist us. And uh, we were actually overwhelmed with the support we received. Um, we beat the amount we raised last year. We raised more this year than, than we did in a, a normal year. Um, and after that, it's been amazing, the support we've received. Um, so we are actually, um, we've completed our annual fundraising goal uh, for just donations. Um, and uh, so we're, we're moving forward now. We've raised our goal because we got new um new quotes in. So luckily we're, we're kind of moving forward with that and um, we're going to be launching our fall campaign. So we have $75,000 to raise to 100% complete phase two. So that's the physical brick and mortar kind of construction element will be 100% funded um, after that $75,000. Um, so if people want to assist, they can donate online at woodlandculturalcenter.ca slash donate and they can help us fin uh, cross that finish line. Mm. Well, that it sounds like a great cause to donate to because we really do have to save this evidence, don't we, Carly? Yes, we do. Yeah, for to tell the story and, and to keep our voice in history. That's how I see it. Yeah, I agree. And I think it also creates uh, a physical space for survivors to be amplified for their stories and their truths to be told. And also the, the, um, the survivors' families down yeah. the generational line. Maybe your great-great-grandparents went there and you don't really know about residential school. It's a place to go to educate yourself about that time and to really see where these children spent their childhoods. Yes, I think it's really important for that, for the, the, those generational survivors that are trying to connect those, those dots to their, their, their past. So I kind of miss that building, Carly. I miss I miss going to work there, and uh, I, my office was on the second floor. It was the housemaiden's office because it had a closet in. Do uh, you know where that is, right? Yeah, I do. Actually, I think your old office is my new office. 
Oh, and right across the hall was the bathroom with the three little bathtubs in. And I would go in that to that bathroom sometimes and I I would just stand there and I would think about what went on in there because I knew some of the stories about the kids having to um, use the same water as the previous child and and things like that. Do you ever go in there and just kind of stand there? And Yeah, I do um, for a couple different reasons. Like one was because of the, 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 you know, that it's been preserved, um, going in there and seeing that the huge hole in the ceiling is, is covered up now and that these three little tubs will kind of continue to be there because of the efforts we've made. So I go in there for a few different reasons. One for that, to see that progress and to see these original parts of the building that are still, still there and still telling their stories. Um, and then also, yeah, to just go in and, and remind myself of what happened you know, just across the hall from my office, what, what happened here. And you're right. Yeah. They would share, they would fill up that water with hot water. First thing for, uh, all three little tubs and every kid would have to go through that same water and clean themselves. Um, so by the end of it, usually it ended up being the oldest would go, get to go first cause they were the biggest and they could push themselves to the front of the line and the little ones would go last. And, uh, one of the survivors, Karen, she remembers being so little. So she was always at the very end of that line and her and the last few people would have to wring out the towel because there's only three towels as well. And it would just be soaked at that point. So they have to wring it out for, to try and dry themselves off after taking these, this cold, dirty bath. Yeah. And that's just one of the stories that the survivors have shared. Um, just like in that bathroom, the three little bathtubs, can you talk a little bit, a bit about the other architecture that they that you've tried to save or that you've tried to replicate? Yeah, so from the exterior of the building, we've replicated the three-tier porch. Um, and it was originally three-tier. Um, at a certain point in history, it became uh, just a single-tier uh, porch. Um, and so during the renovations, we've added the, the second and third floors onto it. Um, so there's a couple little exterior elements like the dormers and the cupola and the dental work, but on the inside, um, on air for areas that were so damaged, uh, the tin ceiling was damaged severely during the, the roof leak. And so we had to, uh, we preserved the, what we could and that what we couldn't, we had remade. Um, but luckily we had the reference to go off of. We had those original tiles, um, that we could use to, to find those replica, uh, replacement tin, tin ceiling tiles. And the same as like in the, the new bathrooms, um, we to be to code for today's time, we did need to add additional bathrooms, um, and they also needed to be accessible. So, um, we actually found some original tile work from one of the bathrooms, one of the staff bathrooms in the basement, uh, when we uh, removed some drywall. So we took those original tiles and we found uh, modern day versions, so replica versions of those original tile work. And that's so when you um, are able to come and visit and walk through the halls and you use a restroom, um, we are hoping that the tile work is also um, kind of keeps you in the in the feel of the space and is as close to as what it might have looked like um, in mm -hmm. the past. And was it easy to find these replicas? Uh, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, if uh, we are pretty lucky with the tile work in the bathroom that it's, uh, it's kind of returned as a popular style kind of for a, more of a, a vintage feel bathroom. So those ones were very easy to find. Um, the tin uh, ceiling tiles were a little harder to find ones that matched. Um, and uh, sometimes cost of creating actual replicas is just not 
possible. Um, so we're picking the closest two, which is already being in product, like already an item in production. So some items were a lot harder to find than others. Some of the easiest things to find was um, we found a, a paint chip. Um, one of the ma uh, site managers for the project, he just happened to find a bit of paint underneath a couple layers of wall. And um, we could assume that I was one of the paint colors that the school was at one point. And so he just went, you know, to the paint supply store and got him to color match it. And that was probably one of the easiest ones to, mm. to match. And what about the bedroom part? In the, Are you going to preserve the girl side or the boy side? So the boys side, uh, so there's two, a couple different levels because the younger and bo younger boys and the older boys would sleep on different levels. Um, so it's again how I was saying how it's a, a mirror image, how the the building is um, is pretty much just looks the same, but one side's a boy side, one side's the girl side. So the main floor um, girl side um, isn't uh, to its full capacity. Um, it has some had had some interior walls built. So it will have something that pays tribute to that, to the younger girl side, um, the, uh, sorry, the younger boy side, the younger, I'm trying to remember my orientation while not being in the building, um, the younger boy side is now the library. Am I doing this in reverse? The girl side was on the right hand side looking at the building yes. and the boy okay. side was on the left hand I'm always side. inside the building when I'm yeah. talking about it. So the uh, different levels were for the different ages. The younger boys and girls would sleep on the first floor and the older ones would go on the next floor and so on. So the boy side is, um, is the second floor is now our language department. So we'll actually have our language center there. So in a space that once removed our language um, is now going to be a space that uh, teaches it and preserves and protects it. Um, and then another example would be the opposite side, the, the girl's side of that second level is fully open for interpretation. Um, so it is a completely blank slate ready to kind of recreate that space as a, as a dorm. And then the younger girl's side is uh, now our research library. Mm. And you can find those beds that look really old nowadays too. Yes, yeah. you can. And so they would have had um, survivors that we can speak with now uh, recall that the beds were um, metal frames like uh, they got at the military supply store. Yeah. And also desks. Um, you can go to antique places now and find these these desks. Yes, and we actually did have replica desks made up um, by the same, so by the volunteers with the Mennonite Group, the Mennonite Disaster Services and Mennonite Central Committee of Ontario. They did make us some replica wooden desks. And so tell us about social media. Where where can we find all this and maybe even some pictures on social media? Of course. So you can follow the Woodland Cultural Center on Instagram, which I believe is just at Woodland Cultural Center. Uh, Twitter, which is at Woodland CC. Uh, and Facebook, again, Woodland Cultural Center. Uh, you can also follow us on uh, Spotify if you want to follow our playlist where we feature lots of Indigenous musicians. Um, and then you can also join our e-newsletter list. We do quarterly updates um, with articles, donor highlights, survivor stories, um, construction updates. Um, and so you can register there under uh, woodlandculturalcenter.ca slash, I believe it's the campaign or campaign. But if you just go to our website, woodlandculturalcenter.ca, you can sign up there. Oh, great. You're putting out a lot of information for people. Yeah, I hope you guys all have your notepads. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Carly Nyawe, for joining us today.
So any other um, things you'd like to add before we, we say onigiwahi? I think we covered everything. Um, yeah, just a reminder, if you'd like to help out, you can donate at woodlandculturalcenter.ca slash donate. Okay, great. Today we've been talking on the podcast with Carly Gallant, the Save the Evidence Coordinator from the Woodland Cultural Center. Onigiwahi. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Yahweh for listening to the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevri. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada.